the Holy Spirit plays a central role in this vision in Zechariah chapter 12 of the future, at least from Zechariah's perspective. The Old Testament doesn't really name the third member of the Trinity, but it does reference his activity over and over again. He's the engine that brings about restoration and revival. He is God himself working in the hearts of his people to, in, to bring them to uh, repentance and restoration. Old Testament prophecy gives the outline that the New Testament fills in. So in Zechariah 12 and 13, we see the Spirit's activity as a major sign that God is doing a new thing that brings about repentance, revival, and restoration. And His power will cause those who pierce their shepherd to mourn over their sins. So we have these two components, a rough outline of the future. There will be a pierced shepherd and a poured out Spirit that brings about repentance. And again, that's filled in on Good Friday in the New Testament with the pierced shepherd of Jesus Christ and the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost. So Zechariah gives these visions in order to exhort God's people in his day to continue their temple rebuilding project after a disappointing return from exile. But also it exhorts us today that by the Spirit, his words resonate to our generation as we await the completion of the work begun by Christ and the Spirit. So we are to stay faithful and trust that by the Spirit's power, God's purposes in his shepherd, Jesus Christ, will be accomplished. This is Understanding Zechariah. Zechariah 12 to 13 divides roughly into three sections. First, we have a prophecy about Israel conquering the nations and returning the house of David to glory. Second, we have a prophecy about a spirit of grace that pours out onto Israel that causes them to mourn over their sin. And third, we see a prophecy about the shepherd being struck and his flock being scattered. Let's look at that first section, the glory of the house of David, the first nine verses of chapter 12. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus says the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So we see here that God reigns as man's creator over all the nations and that gives him sovereign rights over all of life. The God who made all things thus can make Jerusalem into an instrument of his judgment to the nations. 
We see that in the book of Joshua and in, in the Pentateuch, when God uses Israel as his means of judging the pagan nations for their idolatry and for their evil. So once again, we see this. There's going to be a day of judgment called, throughout the Old Testament, the day of the Lord. And on the day of the Lord, there's two things that happen. One, he delivers his people, and two, he judges their enemies. And really, they're both si- they're two sides of, of the same coin. Just as Babylon sieged Jerusalem and destroyed its walls, destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, and that's why Daniel goes into exile, um, and just as, he took, as Babylon took Judah into captivity, there will be a future reversal when the nations will rally against the new Jerusalem, but their efforts will only further their own destruction. For the Lord will strike their horses with panic and their riders with madness. God will deliver his people in a dramatic fashion so they realize once and for all that the Lord of hosts, and that means armies, is their God. And that's the key to understanding Zechariah. The exiles have returned to the land. They're returning to the work of rebuilding the temple, but all of it means nothing. They don't first return to the Lord in true worship and in repentance. It's the presence of the Lord that empowers Judah to be a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. Judah will be a flame that devours their enemies and secures an eternal peace within the city. So all of the strength of Israel comes, again, from its relationship to the Lord, not in their own military might or power or wealth. And when God acts on behalf of his people to deliver them, that can be summed up in one word, salvation. We often think The Old Testament salvation is about physical deliverance, and the New Testament is all about spiritual deliverance. But our final deliverance is both spiritual and physical. We're going to be resurrected in new bodies, and we're going to inhabit a new creation. And this final reality is depicted here in Zechariah, but it's used in Old Testament terms. It's it's framed in an Old Testament lens as the restoration of the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. God is going to glorify his people by first glorifying his king. And we see in the opening of Romans, the gospel is the anointing. It's the raising up, the resurrection of the Son of God in power, the, the, the one who is the true offspring of David. And the raising up of Jesus as the king is the, is the return of the glory to the house of David. And the outflow of that is the return of the glory to David's people, that, that we are the people of the true David, the true uh, royal Messiah, Jesus Christ. And in him, we receive and taste of the glory that is promised here. And this sounds a lot like the revelation of the sons of glory in Romans chapter 8, which talks about at the resurrection, we will be revealed and vindicated in our glory, uh, in in our new bodies, uh, shown for who we are, shown for the glory that we have as adopted sons and daughters. So New Testament realities spring forth from these Old Testament promises. And I think that's the best way to understand this. I don't think he's talking about a specific event that will happen for national Israel in the future. I think he's talking, he's it's talking in, in Old Testament terms about New Testament realities, foretelling them in a way that he can grasp, but a way that in the New Testament comes to full bloom. We can see that it's not just about Israel, it's about all the nations being streamed into a new Israel, and it's not just about the restoration of Israel, but all, of, of all creation in a new heavens and a new earth. Let's look at this next section, starting in verse 10 of chapter 12. They will look on him whom they have pierced. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, 
the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, you shall not live for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet. I am a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. There's a few key events outlined in this passage. First, there's a spirit of grace that pours out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and that brings about a subsequent mourning of repentance over the one whom they've pierced. Now, this may refer to God himself, their great shepherd, whom they pierce continually with their disobedience throughout the history of Israel. And this mourning is compared to Israel's mourning over Josiah, the king, uh, in his death in the plain of Megiddo. It's a very tragic death. And they mourn like people mourning for a fallen king or an only child. And these are rich allusions to the Exodus and the royal dynasty. The Exodus, remember, one of the plagues was killing the firstborn child of, of the Egyptians. Second, we see a fountain that opens up on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and it cleanses them from sin and unrighteousness. So there's a mourning and then a cleansing. And this cleansing removes unclean spirits and false prophets from the land. The false prophets and spirits who influence the people, probably to pierce their shepherd, will themselves experience piercing. And you think about how serious false prophets were taken in the Old Testament. You, you did not mess around with them. If they were a false prophet, you would kill them. Because misleading people and saying, I speak for the Lord when you don't, and leading people off into idolatry is a horrible, horrible sin. And, th and in this, this period, when the, when the Spirit reveals all things, these false prophets will be revealed for who they are. These false prophets also hide their wounds from pagan rituals, such as the Baal prophets, and they will no longer be able to deceive. Their own family will turn them in. And I mean, that's how deep the cleansing goes. They're not going to allow even familial ties to stop them from doing what is righteous and casting out uh, the evil, wicked prophets. Both of these events happen on that day. There's that key phrase again, again, that refers to God acting decisively in history. And it brings about deliverance for his people and judgment for his enemies. But there's a twist the people who were once his enemies who pierced him will themselves be redeemed. And we see this in John 19.37 in the New Testament. Jesus gets pierced in the side by a soldier which releases blood and water. And John views this as a fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. They will look on him whom they have pierced. He quotes it. Now note two things. First, Jesus Christ is identified clearly in the New Testament as the pierced shepherd. And second, a Gentile, not a Jew, looks upon the one whom he has pierced. So the mourning extends beyond just ethnic Israel to the nations. We get another angle of the pierced shepherd as well in the next couple verses in chapter 13, verses 2 to 9, about striking the shepherd. Starting in verse 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. 
I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, these are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. So we get another angle with some odd details. Now, this is a tricky portion of scripture, okay? A lot of these things... It's really difficult to piece together, but we can get the general sweep. Remember, don't lose the main details. There's a stricken uh, uh, shepherd, there's a, a shepherd that's struck by his people, there's a mourning of the people, and there's a pouring out of the Spirit that initiates that. So keep those big blocks in mind so that you don't lose yourself in the details. But here we see this, the, the shepherd is, is struck, and then his sheep are scattered. So God calls for a sword to strike his shepherd. And the shepherd is described as the man who stands next to me, which scatters the sheep. And this leads to a purifying judgment in which God cuts off two-thirds of his people and refines one-third so that they worship him. Now, Jesus, interestingly enough, quotes this passage in Mark 14, 27 in reference to his disciples abandoning him after his crucifixion. So if we piece this together, Jesus is the shepherd whom God strikes But his being stricken is what allows atonement for sin to happen. His death and resurrection bring about judgment and salvation. Those who believe constitute the the refined third who call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And those who disbelieve constitute the two-thirds who reject Christ. But notice there's a fork in the road. Christ forces a decision. When, When the shepherd is struck, it forces a decision to people. Are you going to believe or are you not? Are you going to be saved or are you not? Will you be refined or will you rebel against the work of God in Christ. Now, we've seen a prophecy about the piercing and striking of a shepherd that brings about the pouring out of blessing by God's Spirit upon his people. We have a Passover piercing and a striking followed by a Pentecost pouring. So in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit pours out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem made up of a bunch of Jewish believers from many different nations because they're speaking different languages, and the Spirit converts them. And then it goes on to convert Sumerians and then the Gentiles. So you see this work of the Spirit pouring out after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. The Spirit's poured out, and you see this mass repentance happening in Israel. Although Israel is now constituted, not around a temple, not around a location, rather a a, a land location, but, but around Jesus Christ. He's the new center of Israel and his death and resurrection and ascension. And the spirit pouring out is indicating to everybody, this is the time of refreshing. This is the time of restoration that is beginning in your midst. And it only comes when you trust in the Messiah, when you swear your allegiance to him. Listen to Acts 2 verses 36 to 39, where Peter explicitly sees uh, Pentecost as the fulfillment of Zechariah. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The pouring out of the Spirit is him saying, remember when I said I was going to bless Judah? It's not just for Jews now, it's also for Gentiles. All who are far off, all can take part of this blessing when they believe and repent. And the Spirit is poured out. The Spirit is this time of refreshing. He, he is what, he is, again, he's the engine that brings about restoration. And he constitutes the new people of God in the church 
at Pentecost. Note the similarities. Again, Peter directs his message to the house of Israel about Christ, whom you crucified, right? The, the one whom you've pierced. And then what happens? They were cut to the heart. In other words, they mourned their sin. Then Peter tells them to repent and be baptized for forgiveness of sins. And what happens? They receive the Spirit, the Spirit of grace that cleanses from sin. And this is the promise for you, right? Remember all those phrases in prior chapters of Zechariah where God whistles for his people to return and he draws in Philistines to be grafted into the people of God and he calls people from the nations to bring their treasures to Jerusalem. What's all that talking about? It's the future ingrafting in to Israel of Gentiles. And we see the beginning of that fulfillment here as the gospel goes forth to the nations constructing that new Jerusalem. It's not a physical space It's a spiritual people built of living stones indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And everyone who repents receives the gift of the Spirit, the promise of salvation and the forgiveness of sins. And this is what happens. God is faithful to his promises. He restores the glory of the house of David by resurrecting David's son, Jesus Christ. And then he pours out his spirit of repentance and salvation at Pentecost onto not just ethnic Jews, but to all who will call on the name of the Lord to be saved. 